Well, good morning, church. Uh, it's really good to be with you this morning. And uh, like Dave mentioned, you know, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we just want to say that we're glad that you tuned in and that uh, you're welcome here. And for those of you who have been with us, you know that we have been doing some light reading through the book of Revelation. And specifically, we're looking at seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. And what we're finding is that as uh, Jesus is, is um, revealing himself in these letters, he has a word of encouragement for these churches. He also has a warning. And for some of these, he actually has a rebuke and a call to repent. And um, there are actually two churches in particular that seem to escape the rebuke of Jesus. Uh, the first church is Smyrna, and we talked about Smyrna uh, several weeks ago. And then there's the church that we're going to look at today, which is the church in Philadelphia. So let's turn there together and learn and see what Jesus has to say to the church at Philadelphia. And this is found in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we say yes and amen to this text today. God, we agree that you are true and are holy. God, you are the first and the last, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. We ask God that as we read this text, as we sit in this text today, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have for us, both individually and as Reality Church in San Francisco. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So in the last several weeks, uh, we've approached these letters from the angle of what Jesus sees in the churches. And that's been the focal point of our sermon. But today, today I want to take a slightly different approach to the text. Now, this is not to throw shade at my fellow elders who taught uh, the previous weeks, uh, but today I'd actually like to approach this text not from what Jesus sees in the church, but rather what we see in Jesus through the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And my goal 
is to show you four things that we see in Jesus through the letter to the church in Philadelphia. As we look at the text today, we will see that Jesus is revealing his identity, his authority, his call, and his promise. And I want to repeat that. What we're going to see Jesus revealing through this text is his identity, his authority, his call, and his promise. And my hope is that as we look at each of these, that Jesus would show us individually and as a church the fullness of what we have in him. That this would be an encouragement to our faith no matter what uh, season we find ourselves in. Now, as a side note, I know that as a church, we're used to getting three-point sermons, but today I'm going for the extra credit with the Lord. So there you have it. So with that, let's start by looking at the identity of Jesus. Throughout my life, I have been known by different names depending on who I'm with and how they know me. There are two names in particular that were given to me at a very early age. My dad actually used to call me Boo Boo. Uh, There was a cartoon character when I was young called Yogi the Bear. And some of you know this and some of you probably don't, but Boo Boo was his son. And my dad doesn't really call me Boo Boo anymore, but actually I have passed that nickname on uh, to my daughter, Zoe. I call her Boo Boo often, actually. The other nickname I was given as a kid was Puka. Now, I don't really know where that came from or even what Puka means, uh, because black families, sometimes they like to make up nicknames like Pookie and Day Day and, and Peaches and things like that. But this is how my older relatives, my aunts and my uncles, refer to me as. And even uh, today, every once in a while, you know, I'll get a, hey, Puka. But there are also other names that I have been known by over the years, like Dennis. <laughs> My best friend growing up used to call me Dennis in reference to Dennis the Menace. And it's not because we look so much alike. Uh, mostly, it was because I was a pretty accident-prone kid. I was known for getting into situations that would make anyone scratch their head and ask, how is that even possible? (laughs) But then there was a season post-college when I waited tables and somehow I earned the nickname Urkel. Not really my favorite out of all the nicknames, (laughs) but for some reason it stuck, you know, for a short season. And I'm still not really sure how I feel about that nickname. Like, why not the post-puberty version of the all-grown-up version of the character that Urkel turns into, like Stefan? Because at least, like, Stefan sounds a little bougie. But most recently, in the last five years recently, since becoming a pastor, many people now refer to me as Rev Kev. And I have to credit my dear friend and brother Marlon for that. Thank you, Marlon, wherever it is that you're watching this from this morning. Marlon and I used to be a part of the same CG. Shout out to Sunset, too. But in these different contexts, I'm known by different names, all of which are somewhat terms of uh, of affection or terms of endearment to these different people groups. These names reflect a certain quality or characteristic of who I am to them. So when we look at Revelation, Jesus is actually revealed with different names and different characteristics as well. To the church in Ephesus, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, meaning he is the guarder and protector of the universe. He is in complete control. To the church in Smyrna, he is the first and the last, meaning he reigns eternal. 
To Pergamum, he has the sharp double-edged sword. He is the fullness of truth. He holds the ultimate power and victory. That is found in him. To Thyatira, he is the son of God. Not Caesar, not Zeus, but Jesus is the true and only son of God. To Sardis, he is him who holds the seven spirits. The seven spirits of God being prophecy, ministry, instruction, encouragement, generosity, guidance, and compassion. To Laodicea, he is the amen. He is the let it be so. And to the church in Philadelphia, he reveals himself as him who is holy and true. He is completely other. He is truth incarnate. In verse 7, he says, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Now, in our Western American culture, names don't really hold the same kind of significance as they did uh, in ancient Bible times. For some of us, there is meaning to our names. Maybe we have a family that we were named af uh, after or something, a family member. But today, it's far more common for people to name their children from a book of baby names or even a name that they've heard somewhere and liked. In ancient, in ancient Bible times, names were based on lineage and identity. The meaning of a name carried great significance. In his book, God Has a Name, John Mark Comer says, in ancient writings like the Bible, a name was way more than a label you use to make dinner reservations or sign up for a spin class or file your taxes with the IRS. Your name was your identity, your destiny, the truth hidden in the inner marrow of your bones. It was the one word moniker for the truest thing about you, your inner essence. Jesus revealing himself as holy and true is a big part of the inner essence of who he is. He is holy and true. The Greek meaning for the word true is pronounced alethinos. This refers to basically what is essentially true, connecting visible fact to its underlying reality, emphasizing the integrity of what is true down to its inner makeup, its reality, its true inside and out. And to the church in Philadelphia, he's revealing both the fact of who he is and the genuous and authenticity of who he is. But what does it mean that Jesus is genuine and authentic? Well, I honestly don't know how else to say this other than the fact that Jesus is the real deal. He is who he says he is. He is life. He is the meaning of life, true life. He is truth incarnate and his truth is timeless. Over 2,000 years later, his teachings and ways are what we aim for. Everyone wants to live this way. Ever since God entered into space and time, there's been this tension between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't, those who want to follow him and those who choose their own way to live. Now, I won't necessarily make it all black and white in that binary. There is some, something in between these two spaces. There are people who maybe just don't know. These are people who are growing in their knowledge of Jesus, but they have not yet fully stepped over that line into fully embracing him as God. And I speak to people in the space often, and they're what I call or refer to as in the process of believing. All of us, every single one of us, are on a journey with God, whether you have embraced him or not. 
And on this journey, he is in the process of revealing to us who he is. And he is doing this through our life, our situations, and our circumstances. He is revealing to us his character, who he is in a way that is unique to each of us. But regardless of where we fall on the spectrum, whether we believe we don't believe or whether we just, we're just not sure and we're in process, each one of us on this planet will come to a decision point as to whether we believe that Jesus is who he says he is or not. And part, part of what I hope for today is that if you are in, in the space of being in the process of believing, I would love to invite you to take a step over that line into fully embracing who Jesus is. And there will be prayer that you can receive at the end of the service today. And I hope that you do do that. Because there is an assurance and, an, and a peace waiting for you in stepping over to that other side of the line. For the church at Philadelphia, knowing the genuineness and authenticity of Jesus brought comfort and assurance to them as a church who was suffering different kinds of persecution for their belief in who Jesus is. His words were a reminder that their suffering was not in vain. Now let's move on to the second point, which is the authority of Jesus. When Jesus reveals himself with it, he is revealing his complete authority. On the topic of God's authority, the, the encyclopedia of the Bible says, God's authority and God's self-disclosure are two sides of the same reality. It is in his revelation that God's authority is to be found. Revelation is, therefore, the key to ultimate authority. It is from his ultimate authority that Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, these are the words of him who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The church in Philadelphia suffered different kinds of rejection and persecution. Some scholars believe that they had been completely excommunicated from the temples in the city. These were the social centers of their community, and they were kicked out. The Jewish leaders had literally closed the doors on them and shut them out of the synagogue because they not only rejected the resurrection of Jesus, but also anyone who was identified as his followers. So when Jesus says he holds the key of David and what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. What does that mean that Jesus is the ultimate authority? Well, I think a better question to ask is what does it mean that we live under the ultimate authority of Jesus? As his followers, you and I live under the ultimate authority of Jesus. This means that Jesus is the one who determines the final outcomes of our lives. He is the one who determines if we're in or if we're out. The beautiful thing about living under the authority of Jesus is that we show up, we do our part, but ultimately he is the one who opens the door or shuts the door. He is the one who fights our battles. Our victory is found only in Jesus. We often put a lot of stock into things like getting that job or getting into this program or getting into that school or getting that home or apartment or even getting that you fill in the blank. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to get that job or get into that program or get into that school or that home or apartment or whatever. But we, what we have to understand is that Jesus is the one who opens the door or Jesus is the one who shuts the door. And what door he opens, no one can shut. And what door he shuts, no one can open. So if we don't get into that program, that school or job or whatever it is, it's not over. That's not the end. Those institutions, those companies, those leaders, or again, you fill in the blank, these things are not the final word or authority over our lives, Jesus's. Jesus has the last word and is the ultimate authority over our lives. In Matthew 28, 18, uh, 19, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Because it is out of the authority of Jesus that his call is revealed. In Revelation 3, verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. But what does that mean to hold on to what do you have? And what is, what is our responsibility to holding on to what Jesus has given us? Well, in Matthew 25, there is a parable called the parable of the talents, or in some translations, it's called the parable of the bags of gold. Many of us know this parable. And in this story, there are three different servants. servants. Each has been entrusted with different amounts of talents based on, based on their ability. And when their master returns to check in on them, he comes back to find that some have invested their talents to different, to different measurements of return. And one servant in particular, out of fear, buries his talent. The master encourages those who have invested their talent where the one who buries it gets a rebuke and a punishment. And what's interesting about the story is that the master holds each servant accountable, not to, not necessarily on, based on what they've gained or lost, but on how they managed it. Also, what's notable is that they are not measured against each other, only what each has been given themselves. And likewise, in the letters to the church in Asia Minor, Jesus holds each church accountable only to what they had or were given. He tells the church in Philadelphia in verses 8 and 11, I know that you have little strength. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Again, notice that he doesn't say, Ephesus has worked way harder than you. Or, you know, you're not as rich as Smyrna. Or you don't have as much increase as Thyatira. Or even you're doing way better than Sardis or Laodicea. He doesn't say that. He says, I know you have little strength, just hold on. When all is said and done, we will be held accountable to what we have been given and not what we see that others have been given. What we have in our lives, the ground that we have gained, Jesus has given, that, given us that. The progress that you are making, the progress that I'm making is ground that Jesus has given us. Maybe this is your years of sobriety. Maybe this is a restored relationship or a new relationship. Maybe it's new clients or some kind of financial responsibility. No matter how great or how small, it's important for us to guard, protect, and cultivate 
what's been given to us. We have to hold on to what we have because there is a day with a capital D that all of us will have to stand before Jesus and to give an account to what we have and what we've been entrusted with. So we must hold on to what we have, no matter how great or how small. We must hold on and we must protect and cultivate it. Lastly, I wanna talk about what it is that we're holding on for. I mean, what are we holding on for? Well, we're holding on for the promise of Jesus. In Revelation 3, verses 12 and 13, says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. The promise that Jesus is making to the church in Philadelphia, he is actually extending this promise to us today. And many of us have seen pictures of ancient ruins and many of us probably even been there in real life where after suffering massive devastation, the only things left standing are these huge, massive pillars that held up these huge, massive structures. This is actually what's said to have happened in Philadelphia as a result of a major earthquake that they experienced. And Jesus speaks into that. He says to the church, I will make you pillars. Jesus makes us pillars on earth and in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's been a lot that we have experienced in this last year, and I know that this has affected us all in different ways. And Jesus' promise to us is that he will make us pillars to where it doesn't matter what comes at us in life, that we will remain standing. No pandemic, no job loss, no whatever. Again, you fill in the blank. Absolutely nothing will stand against Jesus. As we come to a close, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I would like to read a verse out of Romans over you. And it's not going to be on your screen. So I'm going to invite you to have an open posture. You can either put your hands out in front of you. You can close your eyes, whatever feels most comfortable to you. And just receive this and listen to this as God's word for you. What do we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare him, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, this is God's promise to us, and in him, the victory is already won, so hold on. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to say thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God that meets us where we're at. Thank you that you are a God that just calls us not to what other people have, but just to what you've given us. You call us to be faithful stewards. And God, the only way that we can manage this is by the help of your Holy Spirit. So thank you for your grace, Lord, and continue to do what only you can do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.